0: What's up, guys? Welcome into another episode of Tuesday Tips, sponsored by the Hunt Lift Deep podcast. This is your co-host Perry, joined as always by our fearless leader, the Luke Cox, and my brother Evan. What's going on, fellas? What's
1: going on, man.
2: What's
0: up, dude? Not much. Living the dream. Ready for another another chance to spread our wisdom to the masses.
1: Good, Good lord, lord, is that what we're doing? <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> oh man. That is kind of frightening when you put it that way. I don't think we're qualified to do any of this. Yeah, that's it. This has been Tuesday Tips. We're not qualified. (laughs) Take everything we say with a grain of salt. There's a 75% chance it's not right. (laughs) It briefs well. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, shit. What do you got for us today? Evan, open us up again.
2: All right, so my tip today is a, uh off-season tip. I know it's something that the three of us do, um, and there's a few different layers to it. But the, the, the basic gist is your hunting clothes, your outdoor clothes, whatever in the off-season when you're storing those. Um, I know a lot of people hang them in the garage, hang them in their closet, put them in drawers, put them in a backpack, whatever, leave them in there. Uh, my tip is store those in a hard container. You can get one of those Plano boxes off of Amazon for, I think like 30 bucks. They're waterproof. You don't have to get a waterproof one. Um, I know a lot of us use, um, Pelicans or waterproof boxes. That way we can transport them in vehicles. But basically the reason for that, as opposed to just storing them out is, well, there's several reasons. One being it helps prevent out, uh, outside scent throughout the year. If you're in the, in there, in your garage, exhaust fumes, um. Any sort of petroleum fumes are really hard to get out of stuff, even if you wash them. Um, Also, they can be damaged by UV. A lot of people don't know that, but UV is a big killer of um, expensive fabrics. And also, if you have the hunting clothes that have like the built-in bug repellent and stuff, the UV is horrible for that shit. Um, And then also moths. what is it? The silver bugs or silver something that eat clothes. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Silver skin? I don't know. (laughs) but it
0: <laughs> don't think it's silver skin.
2: What are these? What the hell are those things called? I don't even talk about foreskin on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> silverfish. That's what they're called. <laughs> silverfish. Yeah. Seriously what they're called. Yeah, That, they, that is what they're called. That they eat, is silverfish. They eat clothes. Huh? Get your mind out of the gutter. Luke Cox, your mother's listening to this.
1: She actually does sometimes, which is really concerning. I get chastised for my language.
2: Anyway, Back on track here. So storing it in a hardened container just goes a long way with the protecting, uh, your hunting clothes or whatever clothes you use mostly for your outdoor recreational activities when pursuing game. Um, another thing you can do, uh, mine and my, mine and Perry's dad started doing this and I still do it a lot, especially when I store my stuff is I'll cut a like pine bough from the area I'm hunting and put in there and it just adds some natural scent. And it doesn't, it's not overwhelming or anything, but it just gives some natural scent to your clothes. And I think it, I mean, who the fuck knows what it actually does, but in my head it works. Um, But I do think that the hardened cases can be really beneficial in the longevity of your hunting clothes, especially if you spend a decent amount of money on that stuff and you want to have it last for your whole lifetime. Then I think there's a lot that goes into that other than just hanging in the garage or throwing in a pile on your chair in your back room somewhere.
1: Yeah, and if you're one of those types that's super worried about um, scent, you know, to the point of excess, like, you can add in – maybe not excess, but, but being very, you know, conscious of it. You can throw in the – there's, like, the wafers, scent, cover scents. There's also, like, the ozonics, if you're worried, you know, with the ozone stuff, which that can actually potentially degrade uh, fabrics as well. But there's a bunch of different options you can utilize within those hard cases as well. So, yeah, that's a good tip, man.
2: Yeah, and that's why I said the pine valve. Maybe you don't want to store your stuff with those, you know, the – the stuff you just listed because there there is hardened chemicals in there. Um, I don't know. It's your preference, but and it goes without saying, I think, but I'm going to mention it. This is obviously washing your clothes before you store them. If you're storing your clothes after they've been worn all hunting season, you're not doing yourself any favors when it comes to the scent. You're just making it worse.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned about the the uh, duration or the durability of the of the different fabrics and trying to protect them too. Because a lot of a lot of guys that are serious hunters, obviously, they're gonna take scent control fairly seriously anyway but it is a good point that the uv and you know just being exposed to to whatever if it's in your drawer like i said hanging in your garage um if you do invest a lot of money in your in your hunting gear and you want to protect it having a having a a watertight and somewhat air or you know even airtight system to do that is going to make it last a lot longer think of it as more of an investment rather than just a you know another article of clothing and that's kind of the way I look at it, and I think it makes a lot of sense.
1: Definitely so. What do you got for us, Perry? My
0: tip this week is going to stay on the um, habitat side of things, and it's actually going to be to use prescribed fire if and when you can. Now, this one obviously comes with a with a few caveats, and uh, anyone know, that knows me knows I'm a bit of a fire bug, always have been. Um I've done done a decent amount of burning, not a ton, uh, something that I did a little bit in college and we've used on our our property with varying levels of um, (laughs) successful management and sometimes not so uh, what you would call a not so controlled burn. So it does happen. Those those are all lessons learned. And for anyone that is out there that is considering use of prescribed fire on their property, definitely be sure to one know the local uh, rules or regulations. If you actually have to have a burn permit from the forest service or whatever your local agency is, and then take every precaution. Um, There's a ton of resources out there on prescribed fire. I'm not going to go through it all here. Uh, Do your own diligence and it's your job to self-educate about those because the last thing you want to do is cause a problem when it comes to fire. But all that said, when done correctly and implemented appropriately, Prescribed fire is one of the absolute cheapest and most effective ways to drastically change the character of your property almost instantly. It can be on a large scale, it can be on a small scale, um, and that's the beautiful thing about it. I know we have clients that have implemented it on a huge scale on you know massive properties, and it's been that with taking you know to account other management activities have completely changed. The character of their property. Um, you can do the, the tried and true method is to do dormant season fires. So you know, think post hunting season. You know, January, February, March timeframe is typically "quote unquote" fire season for prescribed fire. You go in and you try to you try to have a good fire, kill a lot of the uh, the understory, not have such a hot fire that you're killing out um, the canopy or that you know your your Mature trees, and then come springtime, you get a bunch of new herbaceous and um, young woody growth that regenerates and is going to offer a ton of forage and cover for a variety of different wildlife. Turkeys, quail, obviously, deer, all these species post fire will come in with a vengeance, and you can really do a whole lot of good for yourself and your property uh, when you implement it correctly. Again, all the caveats apply, know your rules, be safe with it, have your fire breaks in line, have contingencies in place. But it's something that is, it's getting a lot of traction in the wildlife management world. And it's, it's a tool that landowners can use.
1: Yeah. Fire is a great tip, man. Obviously, like you said, um, you, you got to be careful Perry and I found ourselves in various levels of pickle uh, through burning and sometimes probably being a little too aggressive for what we had. You can talk to a lot of, especially if you're in a rural area that has like a volunteer fire department, uh, talk and plug in with them because sometimes they need to get uh, different repetitions, different training. And so they will actually come in and help you control the fire, you know, if they don't have any other training. So just plug in with them, talk to your, um, you know, you can even talk to DNR and stuff. They've got different programs, recommendations, that sort of thing. So definitely suggest utilizing all those resources. Uh, Also with fire. And so you've got in different areas of the country. You've got different levels. Like in the East, when you burn, you'll actually see an immediate return to growth uh, within that year. Um, If you burn in dormant, it's going to come back pretty green and very quickly by the, in the dormant cycle, excuse me, like what Perry was saying, uh, in the spring and in the summer, it's going to be very rich, lush. It looks great. Out West, it's a slower cycle because everything grows significantly slower, Uh, higher elevations, lack of rainfall, just various different uh, reasons for that. So when you're looking at your Onyx or whatever mapping system you utilize, you can look for uh, different layers, one of which, at least on Onyx, I'm not sure about base maps or the other ones, you can find the fire layer. And it'll give you the area that that fire happened. Usually it's a wildfire. And then um, the year that it burned. And so if you look for like two to four years after the fire, you're going to start to see that growth start to come back because it is slower out West, but that is a great spot usually because uh, a lot of the timber is clear. So it's a great area to glass and you're going to have really good grass and undergrowth there that that's going to be rich for bears, elk, muley. Um, You're not really going to see antelope and all that, but if you do, if you're looking in like the prairie areas, you, you can see antelope there as well because it's going to come back richer and greener. So it's a great kind of hack to look for when you're planning your e-scouting to look for those fire areas somewhere between really it's probably three to four not quite two but two you'll start to see probably more for deer and then three to four for elk but yeah just a little extra tip there
2: i think the fire uh using it as a tool is something that i wish we could do more of on our property and i definitely highly encourage if for you listeners out there have the ability to do that and like perry says if you're if you're getting started You know, take the proper precautions that you can't be too safe with that, especially if you have houses or any sort of rural or uh, sorry, any sort of um, structure nearby where you're going to be doing these prescribed burns. But I do think the the benefits there are outstanding, um, that just all around a phenomenal tool. And I think the three of us should start seriously looking at doing that more on our property when we can, especially because it's honestly quicker to do a burn on some of the areas than it is to do like to bush hog it, especially where it's so steep in the hill country and things like that. There's just, there's so much good that comes out of it. And a lot of people might not realize that, but it's, it's a phenomenal tool to just expand on your whitetail properties or just your hunting properties in general.
0: Yeah. And the thing about it is if you kind of get on a regular rotation, then there's always, I mean, there's always going to be risk with fire. There just is, but if you start, that initial burn, when your fuel load is at its highest, uh, that's when it's gonna you're gonna have the most risk. But if you get on some sort of regular, regimented burn cycle, and you're burning uh, every couple years, or you know, burning different little pieces or corners of your property on a on a regular schedule, then you're never gonna allow the fuel load to accumulate to the point where it gets to dangerous levels. And then it becomes not really routine, but but more more routine than, than that first one. And you have, you have all your precautions in place. You start to get some experience. Um, It doesn't mean you get complacent with it because at the end of the day, you're still striking a match. But the other thing is in a lot of places, the forest service or or various agencies will come out and they can do fire on your property. And it's honestly pretty affordable. And that would be a great way to kind of get comfortable with it. See, uh, see how it affects your property, see how it, moves you towards your goals and see if it's something that you can implement on kind of a long-term basis.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Perry, especially for those of you that live in an area near a university like NC State, Virginia Tech, a lot of the, a lot of the um, state schools will have those programs so that that'd be a great resource to use. Um, something I just thought about actually when I, so I had to redo my hunter safety course um, when I moved here to Bragg cause I lost all my documentation. And so it didn't count. And I just remember when you were talking about it, Perry, that, one of the big uh, positives to them doing controlled burns, prescribed burns here in the Fayetteville Fort Bragg area is it cut down on the tick activity in the area. Can you expand on that? Talk about that a little bit because I know there's probably a lot of users or listeners that would be more than interested in getting rid of some of those pesky ticks.
0: Yeah, I have heard that. I'm not an expert on it. I, I'm not a. I'm not up to date on the latest and greatest quote unquote research, but I do know there's a couple of things. One, obviously a good, strong, hot fire can kill um, insect eggs. So even if you're doing it during the dormant season, a lot of times your insect eggs will will also be dormant during that time of year. But if you get a a good enough, hot enough fire, you can kill some of those insects. And then two, and maybe more importantly, although again, I'm not, not the expert on this, when you, ticks and a lot of your your pests that are kind of in that same vein what they really like is that kind of understory that's about knee to chest high waist high chest high kind of woody stuff think of your your brambles your briars uh, rose bushes blackberry bushes you know whatever is in your region um tall grasses tall weeds those types of things and when you go in with the fire you burn off a, a burn off a lot of that stuff and then you're left with Um, that new growth that's coming in from the, you know, from the very bottom. And it's a lot of young, real tender green stuff that is preferentially um, targeted by wildlife. So there's not as much actual habitat for the ticks themselves to both um, lay their eggs and then complete their life cycle until they find their host. So that's my initial thought on that.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know they do. So here they do controlled burns this time of year a lot when the ticks are out. So, I mean, it's bound to have an effect on the tick population because it's not like the tick's going to outrun a, you know, a undergrowth fire and they're living in all that stuff you're talking about that's waist and knee high. So, I mean, it's bound to have some sort of positive effect when it comes to that. Ticks can't outrun fire. Got it. There you go, bud. There's your, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> your, your words of wisdom from Evan.
1: Tuesday tips coming up. So high, jot that high. down, Luke. I'll add it to the uh to the archive here.
2: Yeah. That could be a t-shirt. I could there's my personal brand. We have the hashtag fuck Perry for him and then ticks can't outrun fire for me.
1: <laughs> well said. Our all next right. bestseller. Oh <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Uh, leave the marketing and branding to me, boys. All right. So my tip, I fucking basically forgot it after that. Um is I picked this up. This is not one that I've used or tried. All right. So I got this It's this a secondhand tip. This is from, um, it's actually my fishing boat captain when I was up in Alaska uh, doing halibut fishing. He'd lived in Alaska since he was in like fourth grade, uh, grew up uh, outside of Delta and which you know anything about Alaska. It's a very rural, remote area, which most of Alaska is outside of Anchorage. Uh, but he did some, a lot of hunting, uh, grizzly, go to Kodiak, hunt grizzlies. Um, I think he did some elk hunting on a fognack. He just did a lot of these kind of for us from the lower 48 would kind of be like a higher risk hunt. And so we were talking about bear hunting and, um, one of the, so when they're getting dropped off either by bush plane or if they're going out by boat, when they're bringing in their food for their base camp, they utilize five gallon buckets, which makes a lot of sense, right? If you get the waterproof ones, those will actually be sealed, uh, airtight watertight. So that's probably going to help with scent with the, the bears. But what, what he said they would do is if they were near water, which they usually were because if they're getting dropped off by bush plane, usually they would drop off near one of these uh, kind of remote lakes or at least some sort of water type of water source. They would sink them whenever they killed an animal. And so they would fill the five-gallon buckets up with the meat and then sink them in the water, which worked for two things. Um, they didn't have any scent for the bears from the meat, because it's underwater, it's within a waterproof bucket underwater. And then two, the temperature of the water keeps the meat cold as they continue their hunts. And so I thought that was a really cool, uh good little tip on just utilizing a five gallon bucket to, and you could, you could do that, you know, out West as well, or anywhere you're, you're in Grizz country, but even if you're worried about black bears, um, just for, or if you have like perishables, you can make like a little makeshift refrigerator there uh, with that with that bucket i thought that was interesting you can also if you don't have buckets if you're going kind of more of a backcountry hunt uh, and you've got you need to make sure to and test these and make sure they're solid you can utilize uh, some of your hefty dry bags and do the same thing put the meat in there seal it and then sink your meat in the water to then keep it cool and keep it out of scent of, of different critters so yeah that's my tip that's quite interesting i definitely never thought of that but we've
2: Never it's kinda fucking brilliant. One. Yeah, it really is.
0: Well, hell, even I know like in some of the western places, with some of the outfitters, if you're going on a place or going going with an outfitter to a place and again you're having it packing in a, a robust camp, horses, mules, or something to that effect. I mean, I would think it would be the same thing there. Tossing a few extra buckets wouldn't add that much weight and that much extra bulk. As you were sitting there talking about that, I was wondering if you could do the same thing if you had uh if you were in the setting, if, if the same thing might apply in like really deep snow, um, I don't know if that would might be. I don't know if I know.
2: just had the same thought. that's funny you said that. I was just about to
0: ask if he's heard anyone do it with snow. I mean, if it's, if it would take some pretty deep snow to be effective, I would think. And so at that have, point, are you I mean, hunting in it? I don't know, but snow
2: makes some pretty good insulation. So I don't think you would have to have it that deep, honestly, especially in a bucket. And you're still in the bucket, correct?
1: Yes, you'd have to buy – you can't just buy the normal buckets from uh, from Lowe's or Home Depot. You'd have to buy – you can buy those same buckets and then buy the, the waterproof lids. Usually they they a sh- lid. yeah, they yeah. seal and they screw on, and those are watertight and airtight. So, yeah, I mean, there's probably a bunch of different variations you can do off that. I'm sure there's a lot of folks listening that have probably done something of that sort. Uh, I've never really been in bear country to the point or killed an animal yet because I haven't killed an elk that I've needed to, like – Cache meat and then go back and forth. Like that there's was a couple your, miles out when I killed the antelope, but I just carried it, carried it out. So
2: there's your next HLE product is a game bucket
1: that comes with <laughs> the lid. Just just so, a five gallon bucket and a lid. We'll buy them uh, from Lowe's for two ninety five. No, but we'll, you will mark them up to twenty nine ninety nine. You make
2: it to where it has a weight so it already sinks. You make it to where it has a rope that spools out on a little reel. Man, come on, think outside the box here, Luke. But I also want
1: Evan just to think about what he just said about needing to put a weight on the end of the bucket that you're going to fill with meat to make sure it sinks. Well, if there's air in there, it's still going to float, homie. I promise you that. You're going to have to get all
2: the air out to keep it from, to get it to sink. A a beer, think about a beer can, how much air is in that thing? It still floats, bro. If An unopened beer can.
1: No, because it's water. It's the same density. Beer and water. A bucket full of meat sinks.
2: No. I disagree. We're gonna test this out. Perry, up.
1: you're the fucking college educated guy. I barely right, graduated guys. and Evan didn't go.
0: You would definitely wanna you would definitely wanna maximize the uh, the volume taken up by the meat, minimize the air in there. But I think you could get it to sink. I, th- I think the density
1: point is we're we're spotty. gonna test this, this uh this fall. We're gonna sink a bucket of deer meat in fucking peach bottom. I'll <laughs> bet you a case of bush
2: lattes that just the meat will float.
0: I'll take that bet. Fear bet.
2: Luke's scared. But I I yeah, I'll take that bet. I think I'll it'll sink. Two. I'm gonna have two
0: cases of beer. Y'all heard it first here, boys. We have our well. first beer bet on the on the HLE Tuesday tips.
1: Tuesday tips are supposed to be succinct and no bullshit. And this the past two episodes have been fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's only twenty-two minutes. But all right, y'all. Uh as always, I really, really appreciate y'all. I appreciate your patience. Hopefully you guys can sift through all the bullshit and pick out some little gems here. Uh, We'll be back next week with some more Tuesday tips. Thanks.